every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. Can you feel the shift that is taking place right now in the public consciousness? I don't mean to sound all mystical and everything, but uh, wow. And maybe it's maybe it's the Canadian you know truckers rally that is is turning into uh, what apparently is is becoming a worldwide movement of truckers. But something has shifted. And, and I don't know about you, but there, there have been times over the last uh, couple of years, particularly in the last six months or so, where I've kind of oscillated back and forth between the sense of, you know, encouragement. Okay, people are waking up. People are starting to see, you know, the, the narrative isn't holding together. And then I swing back the other way and I think, my gosh, what would it take to convince people that uh, what's being done to us and, and what is being taken from us? are not just part of the natural order of things and that uh, this is the way it was supposed to be. Maybe you felt similarly. But uh, there's a, there is a definite tectonic shift underway. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that there there are alternative viewpoints that are getting out there and uh, and people are starting to be exposed to viewpoints and, and some of the honest people are saying, "Oh my goodness, I was misled." Now, I don't want to sound like, you know, I've, I've just become the world's biggest Joe Rogan fanboy, but got to give some credit. Mr. Rogan has done a great service to a lot of people, not by being the answer to everyone's prayers, but simply by being an honest version of someone who is seeking better understanding. I'm sure you've probably heard about some of the, the different uh, controversies that have cropped up in terms of, you know, uh, Joe Rogan and Spotify. I mean, come on. Neil Young threw down the ultimatum. You know, I'm not going to have this man putting out that dangerous misinformation. So it's either you get rid of him or you get rid of my music. Well, Spotify didn't uh, waste too much time in showing Neil Young, hey, uh, you know, um, your music, good as it is, you know, thanks for your contributions. You've done some great stuff there, Neil, but... Rogan's pulling, you know, 11 million listens per episode on average, probably more when you consider his interviews with Dr. Peter McCullough or with uh, Dr. Robert Malone. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely he's definitely got a lot of people's attention. And you have to wonder, well, why why is that such a concern, you know, especially to some of the powers that be? I mean, there's, there is big-time concern that, well, people are, are getting bad information, and, and it's not only bad information, but it's, it's info. They're seeking it out, and they're going to act on it. 
which if I can translate that, what that means to me is you've got uh, you've got people within the mainstream media who are worried that they've been found out as frauds. People aren't enthralled to them. They don't they don't hang on every word with childlike wonder. Gee, I wonder why. So of course there's the push to you know what well, we gotta we gotta deplatform him. I mean you had uh, what was it 170 or 200 doctors, you know only a handful of whom were actually medical doctors. Many were PhDs or others that just for whatever reason didn't like that there was an alternative to the main narrative that was getting out there to the public. And this is kind of a general rule of thumb. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm sticking my neck out here by saying this, but I can't think of a single instance in which the people who were trying to silence someone else were ever on the right side of things. I don't think they've ever held the moral high ground. Now I want you to to hear Joe Rogan's response. This is this is how Rogan himself responded to the Spotify controversy when people were saying we've got to deplatform this guy, you got to get rid of him. He's spreading dangerous misinformation. Here's how Joe Rogan responded. I think there's a lot of people that have a distorted perception of what I do, maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. Um, the podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation specifically about two episodes, a little bit about some other ones, but specifically about two, one with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and one with Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Peter McCullough is a cardiologist and he is the most published physician in his field in history. Dr. Robert Malone owns nine patents on the creation of mRNA vaccine technology and is at least partially responsible for the creation of the technology that led to mRNA vaccines. Both these people are very highly credentialed, very intelligent, very accomplished people, and they have an opinion that's different from the mainstream narrative. I wanted to hear what their opinion is. I had them on, and because of that, those episodes in particular, uh, those episodes were labeled as being dangerous. They had dangerous misinformation in them. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Like, for instance, eight months ago, if you said, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. They would they would ban you from certain platforms. Now, that's accepted as fact. If you said, I don't think cloth masks work you would be banned from social media. Now, that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now, that's on the cover of Newsweek. All of those theories that at one point in time were banned were openly discussed by those two men that I had on my podcast that have been accused of dangerous misinformation. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely. I get things wrong, but I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. Okay, so there's there's Rogan's response. And I honestly, I think he has one of the, the best, uh, most healthy responses to this as, as possible. I mean, it could just simply be about ego, right? It could just simply be about, look, I who are you to question me? 
Isn't that kind of the approach that, uh, that Dr. Fauci took? Okay, that's exactly the approach he took. In fact, he went so far as to, cor- you know, uh, to uh, coronate himself as, as the science. I am the embodiment of science. When you question me, you are questioning the science. I mean, that's, that's a lot of hubris. That's a, that's a pretty big ego to deal with. And, and maybe I'm reading Rogan wrong, but I think the guy is just simply asking questions. Now, unfortunately, for people who are in power, upon whom uh, the the narrative, you know, must be carefully controlled, no one is allowed to consider anything that, you know, would constitute unapproved opinions, that poses a threat. That, That means they see him as, you know, a very dangerous individual. Well, people are listening to him. People, people, people want to believe what he's saying. But why not let people make that decision for themselves? I mean, I know I can't be the only person who who kind of chafes at the idea that uh, you're going to treat me like a child. Well, this is just too dangerous. This information is just more than you can handle. Now, run along and play. But we'll do the thinking. We'll handle the thinking for you. I'm sorry, but screw that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a grown man, and I will think for myself, and I will decide for myself what is right and what is wrong for me. That doesn't mean I'm a law unto myself. It just means I'm not going to be coerced into going along with somebody else's agenda because they suppose that somehow they have the license to run my life. And I pray you have that same attitude within your heart. That's not arrogance. That's not self-centeredness. That is awareness of and appreciation for your God-given rights. That's respect for your creator and that you don't take these things lightly and just, you know, discard them because, well, it got inconvenient. It was hard. And, you know, people might have disagreed with me and maybe maybe they would call me names. So what? I think one of the most uh, devastating articles that I've seen chronicling the uh, mainstream media's campaign to remove Joe Rogan is uh, one that was written by Glenn Greenwald, actually published just a few days ago. The pressure campaign on Spotify to remove Joe Rogan reveals the religion of liberals. Censorship. Now, he's talking liberal Democrats, primarily. And his point is that all factions at certain points succumb to the impulse to censor. But for the Democratic Party's liberal adherents, silencing their adversaries has become their primary project. Glenn Greenwald says American liberals are obsessed with finding ways to silence and censor their adversaries. Every week, if not every day, they have new targets they want deplatformed, banned, silenced, and otherwise prevented from speaking or being heard. Now, he clarifies here, by liberals, I mean the term of self-description used by the dominant wing of the Democratic Party. And Greenwald says for years, their preferred censorship tactic was to expand and distort the concept of hate speech to mean views that make us uncomfortable, and then demand that such hateful views be prohibited on that basis. So for that reason, it's now common to hear Democrats assert falsely that the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech does not protect hate speech. Their political culture has long inculcated them to believe that they can comfortably silence whatever views they arbitrarily place into this category without being guilty of censorship. Now, constitutional illiteracy to the side, the hate speech framework for justifying censorship is now insufficient 
because liberals are eager to silence a much broader range of voices than those they can credibly accuse of being hateful. And that's why the newest and now most popular censorship framework is to claim that their targets are guilty of spreading misinformation or disinformation. And he points out these terms by design have no clear or concise meaning. Like the term terrorism, it's their elasticity that makes them so useful. Now, I got to make a little side journey here and just introduce you to a concept that uh, hopefully you've heard of before. But if you haven't, this is a very useful tool to have in your intellectual toolkit. It's the bogus or unspecified predicate. That's a fancy term for saying something that is left to the emotional associations of whomever happens to be listening. Hate speech, or for that matter, simply the, <clears throat> the accusation of hate, is a good example of what this looks like. So, for example, when someone is accused of hate... That doesn't exactly tell you what they're being accused of. I mean, we all know hate is a bad thing, right? Oh, it's a terrible thing. But without specifying exactly what it is that constitutes that hate or that hate speech or hateful behavior, you're left to draw your own emotional associations. And this is a very clever rhetorical trick in the sense that when someone is accused of hate, when someone makes that accusation, They're shifting the burden of proof to the person who's accused of, well, prove to me that you don't hate. And if you know anything about logic or formal logic, you understand proving a negative is nearly impossible. Prove to me that you are not a hateful individual. No matter what you offer is not going to be good enough. So the person who makes the accusation upon whom the, the burden of proof should rightfully rest slithers back under their rock or whatever they crawled out from under with the accusation carrying the weight of a conviction. You see how that works? Look, this is something that was well understood within the former Soviet Union. Stalin used Article 58 to to great effect to send people to the gulag. What was it that Article 58 prohibited? Anti-Soviet activities. Talk about elastic. I mean, that was just, it was a catch-all that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for instance... Sent to the gulag because of uh, Article 58. That's a violation of Article 58. What did he do? Well, apparently in a letter to a friend, he had said something to the effect of uh, some unkind comment about Stalin. Doesn't matter what it was. He questioned the leader. That's anti-Soviet activities. It could be molded to anything that, uh, that the person enforcing that rule wanted. And that's the idea. I mean, you look at the laws against you know, legitimate criminal activities like like murder or arson. They very clearly define the act. And in fact, even when it goes before a jury, the jury is told, here's what the law says. Here's how the act is defined. And if what the defendant is, is accused of doesn't square with this definition, then you're not supposed to convict them. But with the bogus or unspecified predicate, the accusation is loaded and it's it's filled with just enough emotional baggage to make sure that the person who against whom it's being leveled is is discredited just by virtue of the fact that they've been accused you're not supposed to think in terms of well what does it actually mean 
And now you can, as Glenn Greenwald points out, you can spread this to misinformation. You can spread it to disinformation. You can use it with the term terrorism, all of which have been deliberately vague to allow those who are wielding them as weapons to use them as, as broadly and as, as arbitrarily as possible. All right, thus ends our little side lesson. Anyway, I hope that's useful. Greenwald says, when liberals' favorite media outlets from CNN and NBC to the New York Times and Atlantic spent four years disseminating one fabricated Russia story after the next. Remember this? The Kremlin hacking into Vermont's heating system or Putin's sexual blackmail over Trump? Maybe you remember the story about bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan or the Biden email archive being Russian disinformation? Maybe even the magical mystery weapon that injures American brains with cricket noises. Well, see, under these rules, none of that is disinformation that would require banishment. Nor are false claims that COVID's origin has proven to be zoonotic rather than a lab leak. Or the vastly overstated claims that vaccines prevent transmission of COVID. Or that Julian Assange stole classified documents and caused people to die. These are all false But corporate outlets beloved by liberals are free to spout serious falsehoods without being deemed guilty of disinformation. And because of that, Greenwald says they do so regularly. He says this disinformation term is reserved for those who question liberal pieties, not for those devoted to affirming them. That is the real real functional definition of disinformation and its little cousin, misinformation. It's not possible to disagree with liberals or to see the world differently than they see it. The only two choices are unthinking submission to their dogma or acting as an agent of disinformation. See, dissent does not exist to them. Any deviation from their worldview is inherently dangerous to the point that it cannot be heard. Now, the data proving a deeply radical authoritarian strain in Trump-era Democratic Party politics is ample. And Glenn Greenwald has reported on it extensively. Democrats overwhelmingly love and trust the FBI and CIA. Polls show they overwhelmingly favor censorship of the Internet. Not only by big tech oligarchs, but also by the state. Leading Democratic Party politicians have repeatedly subpoenaed social media executives and explicitly threatened them with legal and regulatory reprisals if they don't censor more aggressively a likely violation of the First Amendment, given decades of case law ruling that state officials are barred from coercing private actors to censor for them in ways the Constitution prohibits them from doing directly. Democratic officials have used the pretext of COVID, the insurrection, and Russia to justify their censorship demands. Both Biden and his Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, have urged Silicon Valley to censor more about Joe Rogan and others who air what they call disinformation about COVID. They cheered the use of pro-prosecutor tactics against Michael Flynn and other Russiagate targets, made a hero out of the Capitol Hill police officer who shot and killed the unarmed Ashley Babbitt, voted for an additional $2 billion to expand the functions of the Capitol Police, have demanded and obtained lengthy prison sentences and solitary confinement even for nonviolent January 6th defendants and even seek to import the war on terror onto domestic soil. So given the climate prevailing in the American liberal faction, Greenwald says this authoritarianism is anything but surprising. 
For those who convince themselves they're not battling mere political opponents with a different ideology, but a fascist movement led by a Hitler-like figure bent on imposing totalitarianism, that's a core defining belief, by the way, of modern Democratic Party politics, it's virtually inevitable they will embrace authoritarianism. When a political movement is subsumed by fear, the orange Hitler will put you in camps and end democracy if he wins again. Then it's not only expected, but even rational to embrace authoritarian tactics, including censorship, to stave off this existential threat. Greenwald writes, fear always breeds authoritarianism, which is why manipulating and stimulating that human instinct is the favorite tactic of political demagogues. And when it comes to authoritarian tactics, censorship has become the liberals' north star. Every week brings news of a newly banished heretic. Liberals cheered the news last week that YouTube's, uh, Google's YouTube permanently banned the extremely popular video channel of conservative commentator Dan Bongino. His permanent ban was imposed for the crime of announcing that, moving forward, he would post all of his videos exclusively on the free speech video platform Rumble after he received a seven-day suspension from Google's overlords for spreading supposed COVID disinformation. Now, what was Bongino's prohibited view that prompted that suspension? Well, he claimed cloth masks do not work to stop the spread of COVID, a view shared by numerous experts and at least in part by the CDC. And when Bongino disobeyed the seven-day suspension by using an alternative YouTube channel to announce his move to Rumble, Liberals cheered Google's permanent ban because the only thing liberals hate more than platforms that allow diverse views are people failing to obey rules imposed by corporate authorities. Greenwald says it's not hyperbole to observe there's now a concerted war on any platforms devoted to free discourse and which refuse to capitulate to the demands of Democratic politicians and liberal activists to censor. The spear of the attack are corporate media outlets who demonize and try to render radioactive any platforms that allow free speech to flourish. So when Rumble announced that a group of free free speech advocates, including Glenn Greenwald, former Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, comedian Bridget Fetassi, I I don't know if I'm saying her name right, former Sanders campaign videographer Matt Orfalia, and journalist Zaid Jelani would produce video content for Rumble, the Washington Post immediately published a hit piece relying exclusively on a Google and Facebook-aligned so-called disinformation expert to malign Rumble as one of the main platforms for conspiracy communities and far-right communities in the U.S. and around the world and a place where conspiracies thrive, all caused by Rumble's allowing such videos to remain on the site unmoderated. By the way, he says the narrative about Rumble is particularly bizarre since its Canadian founder and still CEO, Chris Pavlovsky, created Rumble in 2013 with apolitical goals to allow small content creators abandoned by YouTube to monetize their content. And it's very far from an adherent to right-wing ideology. The same attack was launched and is still underway against Substack also for the crime of refusing to ban writers deemed by liberal corporate outlets and activists to be hateful and or fonts of disinformation. Greenwald says after the first wave of liberal attacks on Substack failed, that script that it is a place for anti-trans animus and harassment 
<clears throat> the Washington Post returned this week for round two with a paint-by-numbers hit piece virtually identical to the one it published last year about Rumble. Newsletter company Substack is making millions off anti-vaccine content, according to estimates, blared the sub-headline. Prominent figures known for spreading misinformation, such as Joseph Mercola, have flocked to Substack, podcasting platforms, and a growing number of right-wing social media networks over the past year after getting kicked off or restricted on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, warned the Post. It's evidently dangerous for society, to society rather, for voices to still be heard once Google decrees they should not be. Now, this post-attack on Substack predictably evoked or provoked uh, expressions of serious concern from good and responsible liberals. That included uh, Chelsea Clinton, among others. We've got to take a real quick break here. We'll come back and finish things up right after these messages. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. My fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Philadelphia in 1776, they would have scrapped the whole idea of independence. A third of the country was for it, a third of the country was against it, and the remaining third, well, in the old human way, was waiting to see who came out on top. Those are the words of David McCullough. Join us back at AmericaOutloud.com and find out which of today's politicians are in which third. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all.
Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. I'm sharing with you an article that was published by Glenn Greenwald on his Substack account, talking about the pressure campaign on Spotify to to mute Joe Rogan, to, to de-platform him, because obviously Joe Rogan is one of the most dangerous figures out there today. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but clearly there are people who are, are very concerned about this, and it's, it's the people who, for some reason, believe that there can only be one official version of things you are allowed to think. Things that you're allowed to consider, which to me seems like a very dangerous road to go down. Glenn Greenwald, as we were headed to the break, I was sharing with you how um, there there are attacks being leveled against Substack. There's attacks being leveled against um, Rumble and other different platforms out there, warning that it's dangerous to society for voices to still be heard once Google has decreed that they should not be. And it's funny, you know, we used to have the, the, the respectable media was was the media giants like the New York Times and, you know, the Washington Post and so forth. Well, they've kind of gone the way of the dinosaurs, but uh, their equivalents today are Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the big social media giants. So now they're trying to act as enforcers and as as other uh, upstart uh, outfits and platforms are created. Well, these uh, these big tech ones are not very happy, nor are there cronies within government who are urging them to do the dirty work of censorship on the part of politicians who know they can't get away with putting their hands right out there and trying to censor people directly. Thank goodness for limits on their powers. <clears throat> Glenn Greenwald says this post attack last week on Substack predictably provoked expressions of serious concern from good and responsible liberals. Now, this included Chelsea Clinton, who lamented that Substack is profiting off a grift. Oh, there is a that's a favorite cuss word. I hear that not only on liberal uh, from the liberal uh, side of the spectrum, but I hear it from the conservative side, too. You want to discredit somebody? Well, they're just grifting. They're just out there trying to make money off a bunch of rubes. They're a bunch of grifters and blah, blah, blah. I guess if, the only the only way you can not be a grifter is to work for government, apparently. But that's beside the point. So apparently this political heiress who's one of the world's richest individuals by virtue of winning the birth lottery of being born to rich and powerful parents, who in turn enrich themselves by cashing in on their political influence in exchange for $750,000 paychecks from Goldman Sachs for 45-minute speeches, and who herself was somehow showered with a $600,000 annual contract from NBC News despite no qualifications. She believes she's in a position to accuse others of grifting. Now, she also appears to believe that despite welcoming convicted child sex trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell to her wedding to a hedge fund oligarch who, whose father was expelled from Congress after his conviction on 31 counts of felony fraud, Chelsea Clinton is entitled to decree who should and should not be allowed to have a writing platform. This is her actual tweet. Anti-vax grift going strong. Why is Substack facilitating science denialists' ability to profit from destructive lies and comfortable profiting themselves? And she cites a Guardian article, anti-vaxxers making at least $2.5 million a year from publishing on Substack. Now, Glenn Greenwald says this post-manufactured narrative about Substack instantly metastasized throughout the liberal sect of media. 
Anti-vaxxers making at least $2.5 million a year from publishing on Substack read the headline of The Guardian. The paper that in 2018 published the outright lie that Julian Assange met twice with Paul Manafort inside the Ecuadorian embassy and refuses to this day to retract it, i.e. disinformation. Like the Post, the British paper cited one of the seemingly endless number of shady pro-censorship groups, this one calling itself the Center for Countering Digital Hate, to argue for greater censorship by Substack. They could just say no, said the group's director, who apparently has convinced himself that he should be able to dictate what views should and should not be aired. This isn't about freedom. This is about profiting from lies. Substack should immediately stop profiting from medical misinformation that can seriously harm readers. Now, Greenwald says the emerging campaign to pressure Spotify to remove Joe Rogan from its platform is perhaps the most illustrative episode yet of both the dynamics at play and the desperation of liberals to ban anyone off-key. He says it was only a matter of time before this effort really galvanized in earnest. Rogan has simply become too influential, with too large of an audience of young people for the liberal establishment to tolerate his continuing to act up. Prior efforts to coerce, cajole, or manipulate Rogan to fall into line were abject failures. Shortly after the Wall Street Journal reported in September 2020 that Spotify employees were organizing to demand that some of Rogan's shows be removed from the platform, Rogan invited Alex Jones onto his show. A rather strong statement to say that he was unwilling to obey decrees about who he could interview or what he could say. On Tuesday... Last Tuesday, musician Neil Young demanded that Spotify either remove Rogan from its platform or cease featuring Young's music, claiming Rogan spreads COVID disinformation. Now, Spotify predictably sided with Rogan, their most popular podcaster, in whose show they invested $100 million by removing Young's music and keeping Rogan. The pressure on Spotify mildly intensified on Friday when singer Joni Mitchell issued a similar demand. All sorts of censorship-mad liberals celebrated this effort to remove Rogan, then vowed to cancel their Spotify subscription in protest of Spotify's refusal to capitulate for now. A hashtag urging the deletion of Spotify's app trended for days. Many bizarrely urged that everyone buy music from Apple instead, apparently handing over your cash to one of history's largest and richest corporations repeatedly linked to the use of slave labor, is the liberal version of subversive social justice. Now, obviously, Spotify's not going to jettison one of their biggest audience draws over a couple of faded septuagenarians from the 1960s. But if a current major star follows suit, it's not difficult to imagine a snowball effect. And Glenn Greenwald says the goal of liberals with this tactic is to take any disobedient platform and either force it into line or punish it by drenching it with such negative attacks that nobody who craves acceptance in the parlors of decent liberal society will risk being associated with it. Prince Harry was under pressure to cut ties with Spotify yesterday after the streaming giant was accused of promoting anti-vax content, claimed the Daily Mail, which, reliable or otherwise, is a certain sign of things to come. Now, Glenn Greenwald says one could easily envision a tipping point being reached where a musician no longer makes an anti-Rogan statement by leaving the platform as Young and Mitchell just did, 
but will instead be accused of harboring pro-Rogan sentiments if they stay on Spotify. With the stock price of Spotify declining as these recent controversies around Rogan unfolded, a strategy in which Spotify is forced to choose between keeping Rogan or losing substantial musical star power could be more viable than it currently seems. Spotify lost $4 billion in market value this week after rock icon Neil Young called out the company for allowing comedian Joe Rogan to use its service to spread misinformation about the COVID vaccine on his popular podcast. The Joe Rogan Experience. That's how the San Francisco Chronicle put it. That Spotify's stock price dropped rather rather precipitously contemporaneously with this controversy is clear. Less so is the causal connection though it appears uh, unlikely to be entirely coincidental. Now, it's worth recalling that NBC News in January of 2017 announced that it had hired Megyn Kelly away from Fox News with a $69 million contract. That network had big plans for Kelly, whose first show debuted in June of that year. But barely more than a year later, Kelly's comments about blackface in which she rhetorically wondered whether the notorious practice could be acceptable in the modern age with the right intent, such as a young white child paying homage to a beloved African-American sports or cultural figure on Halloween, so enraged liberals, both inside the now liberal network and externally, that they demanded her firing. And NBC decided it was worth firing Kelly, on whom they had placed so many hopes and eating her enormous contract in order to assuage widespread liberal indignation. $69 million bite. Good. I hope it tasted bad all the way down, too. The Guardian proclaimed, The cancellation of the ex-Fox News host's glossy morning show is a reminder that networks need to be more stringent when assessing the politics of their hirings. Yeah. I'll just let that stand as it is. Greenwald says Democrats are not the only dominant political faction in Washington controlling the White House and both houses of Congress. But liberals in particular are clearly the hegemonic culture force in key institutions like media, academia, and Hollywood. And that's why it's a mistake to assume that we're near the end of their orgy of censorship and deplatforming victories. It's far more likely that we are much closer to the beginning than the end. Why? Well, because the power to silence others is intoxicating. Once one gets a taste of its power, they rarely stop on their own. Indeed, it was once assumed that Silicon Valley giants steeped in the libertarian ethos of a free Internet would be immune to demands to engage in political censorship or content moderation. That's the more palatable euphemism which liberal corporate media outlets prefer. But when the still formidable megaphones of the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News, CNN, and the rest of the liberal media axis unite to accuse big tech executives of having blood on their hands and being responsible for the destruction of American democracy. That is still an effective enforcement mechanism. Billionaires are, like all human beings, social and political animals and instinctively avoid ostracization and societal scorn. Greenwald says, beyond the personal interest in avoiding vilification, corporate executives can be made to censor against their will and in violation of their political ideology out of self-interest. The corporate media still has the ability to render a company toxic, and the Democratic Party, more now than ever, has the power to abuse their lawmaking and regulatory powers to impose real punishment for disobedience, as it has repeatedly threatened to do. 
if Facebook or Spotify are deemed to be so toxic that no good liberals can use them without being attacked as complicit in fascism, white supremacy, or even anti-vax fanaticism, then that will severely limit, if not entirely, sabotage a company's future viability. Now, he says the one bright spot in all this, and it is a significant one, is that liberals have become such extremists in their quest to silence all adversaries that they're generating their own backlash, based in disgust for their tyrannical fanaticism. In response to the Washington Post's attack, Substack issued a gloriously defiant statement reaffirming its commitment to guaranteeing free discourse. They also repudiated the hubristic belief that they are competent to act as arbiters of truth and falsity, good and bad. Society has a trust problem. More censorship will only make it worse, reads the headline on the post from Substack's founders. The body of their post reads like a free speech manifesto, quote, That's why, as we face growing pressure to censor content published on Substack that to some seems dubious or objectionable, our answer remains the same. We make decisions based on principles, not PR. We will defend free expression and we will stick to our hands-off approach to content moderation. While we have content guidelines that allow us to protect the platform at the extremes, we will always view censorship as a last resort because we believe open discourse is better for writers and better for society. End quote. Now, Greenwald writes a lengthy Twitter thread from Substack's Vice President of Communications, Lulu Cheng Maservi, was similarly encouraging and assertive. She wrote, I'm proud of our decision to defend free expression, even when it's hard, because, number one, we want a thriving ecosystem full of fresh and diverse ideas. That can't happen without the freedom to experiment or even to be wrong. Regarding demands to deplatform those allegedly spreading COVID disinformation, she pointedly and accurately noted, if everyone who has ever been wrong about this pandemic were silenced, there would be no one left talking about it at all. And she too, she too affirmed principles that every actual genuine liberal, not the Nancy Pelosi kind, reflexively supports. Quote, people already mistrust institutions, media, and each other. Knowing that dissenting views are being suppressed makes that mistrust worse. Withstanding scrutiny makes truths stronger, not weaker. We made a promise to writers that this is a place they can pursue what they find meaningful without coddling or controlling. We promised we wouldn't come between them and their audiences. And we intend to keep our side of the agreement for every writer that keeps theirs, to think for themselves. They tend not to be conformists, and they have confidence and strength of conviction not to be threatened by views that disagree with them or even disgust them. This is becoming increasingly rare. End quote. Now, Greenwald says the UK's Royal Society, its National Academy of Scientists this month, echoed Substack's view that censorship beyond its moral dimensions and political dangers is ineffective and breeds even more distrust in pronouncements by authorities. They said governments and social media platforms should not rely on content removal for combating harmful scientific misinformation online. There is, they concluded, little evidence that calls for major platforms to remove offending content will limit scientific misinformation's harms, and such measures could even drive it to harder to address corners of the Internet and exacerbate feelings of distrust in authorities. 
as both Rogan's success and collapsing faith and interest in corporate to traditional corporate media outlets prove, there's a growing hunger for discourse that is liberated from the tight controls of liberal media corporations and their petulant herd-like employees. And that's why other platforms devoted to similar, similar principles of free discourse, such as Rumble for videos or Colin for podcasts, continue to thrive. It's certain that those platforms will continue to be targeted by institutional liberalism as they grow and allow more dissidents and heretics to be heard. Time will tell if they, too, will resist these censorship measures, or pressures, rather. But the combination of genuine conviction on the part of their founders and managers, combined with the clear market opportunities for free speech platforms and heterodox thinkers, provides ample ground for optimism. Now, none of this is to suggest that American liberals are the only political faction that succumbs to the strong temptations of censorship. Liberals often point to the growing fights over public school curricula, and particularly the conservative campaign to exclude so-called critical race theory from public schools as proof that the American right is also a pro-censorship faction. But Greenwald says that's a poor example. Censorship is about what adults can hear, not what children are taught in public schools. Liberals crusaded for decades to have creationism banned from public schools and largely succeeded. Yet few would suggest that this was an act of censorship. And he says, for the reason I just gave, I certainly would not define it that way. Fights over what children should and should not be taught can have a censorship dimension, but usually do not precisely because limits and prohibitions in school curricula are inevitable. Now, he says there are indeed examples of right-wing censorship campaigns. Among the worst are laws implemented by GOP legislatures and championed by GOP governors to punish those who support a boycott of Israel by denying them contracts or government or employment benefits, rather. And among the most frequent targets of censorship campaigns on college campuses are critics of Israel and activists for Palestinian rights. But federal courts have been unanimously striking down these indefensible red state laws, punishing BDS activists as an unconstitutional infringement of free speech rights. And polling data, as noted above, shows that it's the Democrats who overwhelmingly favor Internet censorship, while Republicans oppose it. So, in sum, censorship, once the province of the American right during the heyday of the moral majority of the 1980s, now occurs in isolated instances in that faction. In modern-day American liberalism, however, censorship is a virtual religion. They simply cannot abide the idea that anyone who thinks differently or sees the world differently than they should be heard. That is why there's much more at stake in this campaign to have Rogan removed from Spotify than whether this extremely popular podcast host will continue to be heard there or on another platform. If liberals succeed in pressuring Spotify to abandon their most valuable commodity, it will mean nobody is safe from their petty tyrant tactics. But if they fail, it can embolden other platforms to similarly defy these bullying tactics, keeping our discourse a bit more free for just a while longer. This is why it's so essential that you and I continue to support and patronize alternative platforms. And yes, this is an alternative platform that you're listening to. Don't get me wrong, it's a good one. This isn't isn't some garage band. This is a legitimate platform, but 
Just understand, there is no place that where you can safely hide or safely just wait this out and hope that the temper tantrum, you know, on the part of the censors ends soon. You got to be willing to speak up. That means you've got to be willing to stick your neck out, to be called names, to be misrepresented, to be accused of hate or terrorism or misinformation or disinformation. Yet not to be swayed in your desire and your ability to continue speaking the truth. What a great column. What a great uh, piece from Glenn Greenwald. I'm going to shift gears here in the last few minutes. I want to share uh, a couple of thoughts regarding the uh, Canadian truckers protest, which is is still having reverberations around the world and, and sparking other similar protests. Heather Haying in her substack, uh, naturalselections.substack.com, has an article about proud to be Canadian again. And this is such a great piece. Because, again, the, the press, first they ignored the truckers, now that they cannot ignore them. The reality is just too strong to ignore. They're doing their best to discredit them. She says, huge numbers of Canadians lined roadways and overpasses to cheer on the truckers on their way to Ottawa this past weekend. People with signs of love and belonging, reveling in a common humanity. With glowing hearts, as the line from the Canadian National Anthem goes, the true north, strong and free. Now, the truckers and their friends and supporters are overwhelmingly open and generous, seeking a return of the freedoms that have been taken from them, as from so many of us. And there's an abundance of footage online now. In fact, she links to a very excellent summary. And yet, the British newspaper, The Guardian, in one of two articles about this massive movement, highlights a trucker by the name of Sava Vizi, a trucker whose introduction to us is through his words, which contain a grammatical error. He says, I'm not able to work no more because I can't cross the border. Now, Heather Haying says, one can almost hear the educated readers of The Guardian snickering in their masks. But she says, alas for them, good grammar is not a proxy for truth. Vast swaths of the educated class have demonstrated these last two years that their educations were woefully inadequate. When told to hashtag follow the science by a dude who claims that I am the science, they do so. When asked whether or not there might be more to the story, whether the story might not be what it seems, the same uh, educated class assures us that the science is settled. And what does the science say? Well, somehow it justifies a conveyor belt of COVID vaccines from here into eternity. Vaccines that prevent neither transmission nor infection. Although just months ago, we were assured that they did. Vaccines even for children and pregnant women. Also, masks for everyone, including children, who even more than the rest of us need to see each other, to speak and breathe freely, and to see others doing the same. See, somehow the fact that the science is an incoherent mashup of politically motivated policies does not register. The educated class keep right on snickering into their masks. Their feelings of superiority and entitlement are enhanced by having been misinformed, yes, by their precious mainstream outlets. Outlets that once upon a time could justifiably be called news outlets, but no more. They are outlets now, to be sure, but outlets for anger and anxiety rather than news. Outlets that propagate division and delusion. And one thing that's put all of this in stark relief is how uneducated many of the educated actually are. How ignorant the smart people are, how smug and naive are those who just happen to be best positioned to ride out the insanity, the lockdowns, the masking, the fear campaigns, 
while relying on people who do real work, people like truckers, to keep on trucking. But please, leave the thinking to us. VZ, the trucker who committed the mortal sin of using the construction I'm not able to work no more, is then used by the Guardian to further entrench its entitled readers while stroking their egos. I refuse the vaccine, he said, calling it dangerous. Now, this may garner a knowing snort or an eye roll from the educated Canadian, or the educated Guardian reader, rather. Ego stroked and dug into full COVID anxiety and hysteria, as she likely is. But such a person might also look around furtively at this point for affirmation. All such readers might sometimes look up from their lives of aspirational envy and wonder if the tiny slice of the world that they live in is actually reflective of the whole world. Heather Haying says, I can assure them it is not. In fact, she says the moralizing of the pseudo-educated class is pathetic and desperate. The popular AM show Morning Joe did a particularly grotesque segment. Disgust and disdain dripping from every syllable, they claim that dozens of trucks brought Ottawa to a standstill. A movement that escalated into an expression of disapproval against uh, the Canadian government's COVID-19 policies. Officials say several investigations are underway into reports of severe vandalism and criminal behavior, including desecration of national monuments. The host of Morning Joe conclude that participants in the Truckers for Freedom movement are a cult. Well, there's a cult to be found in this story, to be sure. But the truckers and their supporters, who together number in the millions, aren't in it. These media bobbleheads are not speaking the truth. They're not even speaking what they think. They may not be thinking hard on it at all, considering new information, more data, better analysis, and coming to a different conclusion the next day. No. That would be a scientific approach, and one based not in ideology, but in humanity. Rather, this is hateful, divisive, facile rhetoric. With ideological rhetoric such as this, we might at least expect consistency. At least with set-and-forget lies, you trust that you won't be found out as a hypocrite. But you know what does characterize the movement? Heather Haying says, Truckers for Freedom convoy and protests are massive and peaceful. The people in them are patriotic and proud. They seek the freedoms that we were all born to, not special treatment from the state. Now, have there been any outliers, rogue individuals who behaved in ways that they shouldn't have or flown flags that nobody else wanted there? Surely, yes. But the mainstream media would have us believe, well, this is a movement of Washington Confederate flags and swastikas. These people are filled with hatred and ignorance. And Heather Haying says, I posit it is rather the mainstream media that's full of ignorance and hatred. She shares the observations of a guy who remains anonymous out of concerns for his job, should his positions be known. Who talks about what he saw as the convoy came between Quebec and Ottawa. Now, he's fully vaccinated, just so you understand. This is not some raving anti-vax, you know, uh, nut job. He said, I had the privilege of traveling through Ottawa on Saturday, January 29th from the Quebec side, and I got to see firsthand the trucker convoy protest. What surprised me was how much activism and support there was on the Quebec side and effort made by authorities to prevent people from traveling from Quebec into Ottawa. He says, I was struck in stuck in traffic rather for four hours for what's usually a 40 minute drive. The energy, positivity, camaraderie and celebration were truly emotionally profound. The inclusivity and solidarity were something I haven't felt for years. 
And he says, finally, I felt like I was validated in my beliefs. Everyone was so kind and so supportive. It was such a positive experience. Now he goes on to say, I did not see one example of anger, violence, racial, or gender prejudice, and not one Confederate or Nazi flag. The movement of people I witnessed would have denounced any examples of the aforementioned. So this is a movement that is, is powerful, and it's, it's not just the truckers, but it's the throngs of people coming out to support them. There isn't a town, city, or hamlet that they've passed through without crowds of people coming out to cheer them on, to ply them with food and goods and offer a place to stay, even a hot shower. In fact, at least one contributor here says they hadn't had a, had a day yet without getting choked up by the overwhelming generosity of the people they encountered. And saying, I think perhaps the sense of unity and love for our, for our fellow Canadians is the real story developing. Over and over, we hear people say that after two years, they're proud to be Canadians again. You know, I've teased my Canadian friends from time to time about, you know, buying milk in bags and things like that. Their, their unfailing politeness and, and general, you know, easygoing approach. But thank you, Canada for showing the backbone and thank you to all those truckers who've been willing to stand up and stand firm not just against the mandates for them but against all the mandates that's how you know a true advocate of freedom 